Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Fed Scoop News Countdown, the three most important federal news stories of the week as selected by two experts in the federal government community. It's Friday, May 27th, 2022. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Today, my experts in the federal government community are Dan Chenick, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, former Branch Chief for Information Policy and Technology at the Office of Management and Budget. Hello to you, sir. Hello, Francis. And Mark Foreman, Executive Vice President at Dynamic Integrated Services, former eGov Administrator at OMB. It's an all OMB show today, Mark. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you. It's great to have both of you, and it's great to get things going. We start the countdown with... Number three. And Mark Foreman, your third most important federal news story of the week is local police saying that they're implementing the Biden administration's police reforms. This didn't strike me as a particularly federal story. Why'd you pick it for the countdown this week? Well, there are a couple things in here. First of all, I think it shows some growing sophistication in the management approaches for these executive orders. As uh, Dan and I think... um, we found out with the Clinger Cone letters and, and other management reforms, you can put out directives and maybe people will follow them, or you can engage the people in what should be the directive and what should be the change and lock that in by a directive, which is, seems what the Biden administration did with this, this policing directive. And I, I think that it, if you're an insider in the bureaucracy, you find that that's a much more effective approach than the top down. So that was one key element. Dan, what do you see when you watch these executive orders? And we've had a number of them since President Biden was inaugurated. What do you watch for follow on to see whether the spirit and the letter of the EO has been met? What makes sense for people to pay attention to? So I think Mark's point about, you know, executive orders can only take you so far so you want to have things that are implementable, um, you know, and, and no administration wants to put an executive order that's really, you know, infeasible to achieve. Um, and so typically uh, the executive orders of this administration have been very practical, tactical and have, um, you know, drawn on best practice. And, and, uh, and in this case, uh, for example, uh, have uh, implemented a lot of reforms that we're seeing across the country. How do you measure success in an executive order, Mark? Well, I look at outcomes always. It's based on the data, the outcomes. And one of the elements of this that was picked up in the, in the news article that you mentioned is that it, it endorses and incorporates the use of evidence-based policymaking approaches and evidence-based approaches for doing just that, figuring out what works and making those adjustments. I think that's uh, also, uh, integration of the evidence-based policy approach is a key element here. That's also then dependent on the fact that you're getting good data on what it is you're measuring, right, Mark? That's absolutely the case, and that you're measuring outcomes as opposed to uh, what people refer to as outputs. Mm-hmm. Are we getting better, Dan, at at being sure that we know that the quality of the data that we're getting is really uh, good for making decisions on? Yeah, I think you've seen a real evolution on that since even before the time that Mark and I were at OMB and and, uh, thereafter, there's been an evolving focus on the importance of treating data as a strategic asset, as has been done by the last several administrations. Uh, You now have the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, as 
Mark, Mark discussed. And you've got, you know, the things like the federal data strategy, which are still, although it was done in the prior administration, is still sort of at the core of a lot of initiatives that are now the president's management agenda. So, so there's definitely been an evolution. I'll ask both of you this one. I wonder if there are any pieces that are missing yet to get to the the desired end state. Our, we've mentioned the Evidence Act. We've mentioned Data Act, uh, Data Strategy. There's a bunch of pieces that we've already talked about. Is there anything lacking to make sure that follow through and I hate to use the word accountability because it implies somebody would get fired if something doesn't work, but it, you, I think you get what I'm getting at, both of you. Mark, do you see any pieces that would be helpful in, in either an administration or an agency getting to where we want them to be? As it relates to this particular initiative, I do see a gap. And, and we certainly saw this in some of the uh, border security initiatives. There's been a, a cultural issue for many years that um, people thought if they just collect data in law enforcement, somehow they get behavioral changes and, and they never connected the collection of the data with the intervention that needed to occur afterwards or some workflow that you do, a bell ringer that would say the data has been submitted and here's where the problem is, here's where you got to focus. So that's the gap that I see is that that bell ringer that generates the workflow or the intervention. Mark Foreman's choice is the third most important federal news story of the week is uh, local police saying they're implementing a lot of the Biden administration's uh, executive order terms on uh, police reforms. Dan Chenick, your choice at number three revolves around artificial intelligence. The chief data officer of Special Operations Command saying at SOFIC this year that digital transformation depends on AI. I, I, I hate to say to someone like that, no kidding, but that's kind of where we are in 2022, isn't it? There, artificial intelligence is really going to drive a lot of what everybody seems to be talking about that are the components of digital transformation. So it makes sense that it's going to underpin the broader concept to me, at least. Did I miss yeah, something? What was important to me about the story and the statement from the SOCOM chief data officer was applying it to an operation of, of global scale and an import like the special operations led out of out of SOCOM, which leads so many uh, important uh, initiatives all around the world every day. And, and the, the application of AI to all three elements of their information domain, to, um, to mission command, uh, you know, to, to, to providing information to people in theater and making their decision-making faster, more accurate, uh, the fusion of intelligence uh, operations, so the the actions of the of uh, special operations commands work with other parts of the intelligence community to act on information quickly and use AI to find you know needles and haystacks more quickly, uh, that sort of thing. And then the business systems that are sort of the foundation that that powers all of the mission elements. So the CDO really talked about AI driving forward in a significant scale across all of those elements of this critically important function. Uh, Thomas Kenny is the CDO of uh, SOCOM, Mark, and he said this that I thought was striking. It's a reinforcement. It's not new, but I like the way he phrased this. Humans are absolutely more important than hardware, but humans can be augmented and enhanced with hardware. Hardware and humans coming together can really enable us to do great things. That gets at the core of what the, de the Defense Department, at least, has been very careful about through the time that it's talked about AI publicly. And that is, to paraphrase, we're never going to let 
the algo push the button but it's that idea of augmentation of the human decision-making process that they've emphasized what do you see in there if anything that either is reinforcing or new to you mark yeah i don't see anything really new i mean this um i think has been known as one of these long-term trends are almost like uh um we know in it that more and more processes commoditize and become shared services. I think in this, in this uh, arena, um, there's a, a role for algorithm-based insights. And the more data you have to pull together, the harder it is for people to move outside of their biases. And, and I know, you know there are plenty of studies that show even algorithms have bias, even data collection has bias. But, but the ability to pull together so many different insights to make sense of them, to leverage things like machine learning so that those insights can improve or that the algorithms can improve, there's no question that the, the power of compute really helps. Dan, there's another quote here from uh, Thomas Kenny that I wanted to pull out. He said, when democratization of data is across the entire DOD, the opportunities are absolutely endless. What does democratization of data look like in a successful and a mature environment in a federal agency, do you think? Yeah, it's really getting data into the hands of the people that need it without a whole lot of bureaucracy. Um, so uh, typically, and, and you know, Mark and I dealt with democratizing data in, in the initiatives that we worked on in the civilian space 20 years ago. Um, but typically there's a lot, there's like a value chain that information flows in and it's really hard to get especially in a, in, a, in a military setting, you've got people from different organizations, different countries um, who, are, who need to work together very quickly and who don't have time to kind of go up and around bureaucracies to share information. And by using AI at scale um, and building in the way that Mark described in sort of this evolutionary fashion over the last several years, you can create uh, the opportunity to, to merge processes, to have people work together um, and use data as their core. Uh, one example is you can have um, uh, common maps and uh, our center is working with the Institute for the Study of War on an initiative around visualization across the military and using data to visualize things more effectively to, to assist decision makers. So you can create assets that help people come together very quickly for decision making without having to go around a lot of bureaucracies. Dan Chenick's choice is the third most important federal news story of the week. Comments by the chief data officer of Special Operations Command that digital transformation depends on AI. The countdown continues in just a moment. A reminder first that Monday, the Daily Scoop podcast is off for the Memorial Day holiday. We're back on Tuesday with the Chief Information Officer of the Army, Raj Iyer, on a brand new Daily Scoop podcast. And we are up to... Dan Chenick, your choice as the second most important federal news story of the week is the 2022 Federal Workforce Priorities Report. Uh, Rob Shriver, the Associate Director for Employee Services at OPM, writing about four primary priorities and four enabling priorities that agencies should look at, choose two to work into their strategic plans. What did you see here that you thought was really a big deal? Well, it's the second... Um report like this under a statute that was passed in 2017 and the first statement of the new administration around sort of what are the strategic priorities for the federal workforce going forward and we're 
We've seen a lot of focus on federal employees and, and how they can their work can be made more effective and efficient. Um, they talked about things like technology um, and IT modernization to support uh, federal employees um, uh, more effectively to do succession planning and knowledge transfer uh, was an important priority. Uh, enhancing the employee experience and making sure that employees have a, a fulfilling role, a fulfilling job, uh, that there's inclusion and diversity in the workforce. One of the ones that I, the fourth one that I wanted to focus on uh, was around agile, um, uh, an agile workforce. And they really drew directly on an initiative that I've been working on with the National Academy of Public Administration um, through with our center, the Agile Government Center, which has uh, developed a set of principles and wrote a report around how to, how to bring Agile, the tenets of Agile, which was really a technology discipline and apply it to other settings. And certainly workforce planning can be done in a much more agile way. And this was an example of that. Yeah, Ed DeSev is leading that, if I recall correctly. He was on the program talking about that concept of uh, agile, uh, agile workplace, uh, agile work environment uh, not too long ago. Mark, what do you see as far as the, the way that these things connect to the president's management agenda? Terry Gurton of, the, of Napa talked about this on this program a week or so ago, and that was her kind of main point is that all of these things that the administration's coming out with seem to be tied to or feed into the president's management agenda. Well, I, I think that's a good thing. I think having a productive workforce um, is not a partisan issue or shouldn't be a partisan issue. Um, you know, my lessons learned insight continues to be that there's a substantial federal workforce that's in the contractor community. And uh, we did look at this when I was at OMB and, and we found out as it related to IT, there are about a million people doing support to the federal government in IT and about, I think it was 82 or 83% were contractors. So this gets at what's your sourcing strategy, what's your organization design? And, um, and, and I just, I think there's so much movement that needs to occur in the organization design of the federal government. We need a little bit more holistic approach between what's being done with contractor support personnel versus what's being done with government employees. I don't think it's, a, I don't think there's a wall between them anymore. And, and I just think that there's not enough emphasis given to that. What would fix that? Well, like I say, I think that they're, there are organization design issues across the federal agencies um, right now. Um, it is so hard to do that in these political environments because politics of unions, people don't like federal employees, people like federal employees. There's so many external factors that, that I, I don't know how well it can be done. I like the agile uh, government approaches concept, but um, you know, I don't, know how many secretaries look to their chief human capital officers like you'd see in the private sector where they're helping figure out how do we improve our organizational design effectiveness and maybe that's something that needs to be done with the the chicos dan to mark's point about organizational design if we're going to apply the term agile to the workforce the way that you use a technology term to apply to workforce Maybe it's time to apply another one. Maybe it's time to start thinking about the enterprise architecture of the workforce. What? <laughs> what? No, I, I mean, I, I know it sounds funny, but that, I, I think that 
might be a serious thing. Is that, am I, am I crazy, Dan? It doesn't sound funny. It, it's <laughs> ironic. Oh, okay. Cause, uh, cause you were the first one to laugh. You laughed before Chenick did. No, it, it's, um, it's something that certainly we talked about personnel when we were doing the enterprise architecture 20 years ago, or none of this gets done without people in, in government and industry. Um, and you can apply uh, the, the kinds of sort of objectives, means, and um, authorities in an architectural framework to bring together and to kind of equalize across sectors. And I would add civil society to, I mean, which at, in this decade of the 20th, of, of this century, uh, they're often involved in the delivery of government programs as well through grants, through the works that they do with state and local government. So it's a very complex multi-sectoral relationship in terms of people doing services that were once done primarily by federal employees. Dan Chenick's choice is the second most important federal news story of the week is the 2022 Federal Workforce Priorities Report as released this week by OPM. Rob Shriver signed it. Mark, your choice at number two is my colleague Billy Mitchell's FedScoop story titled Board Plans to Spend uh, Remaining $750 Million in TMF by Year's End. I saw this story while I was down at the uh, ACT-IAC conference this past week, and I leaned over to Dave Wintergren and I said, when do you think they're going to do a big one? You've got three quarters of a billion dollars here, and I wonder, does it make sense, and would it be a good idea to move from the 500000 to $10 million range that they've done so far, there may be a few a little bit higher than that, to something that's a really big bang because you have this much money and and show especially Congress the potential power of the TMF, or am I off the rails? I don't think you're off the rails. Um, if you look at a lot of the numbers, it seems like about 15% of the IT spending every year goes into modernization. And in the scheme of things, you know, a billion dollars, maybe somewhere around uh, 10, 12, 15% is it's a lot of money numerically, but it's not a big percent. And uh, I like this, this article because one of the issues that I think the agencies have had and to some extent still have is putting together decent business cases to justify the modernization and communicate to Congress the return on investment. Um, when uh, Claire has talked about the TMF you know, going back four or five months, she said something along the lines of, we've got to see better business cases. I think Maria said the same thing and they were going to help agencies. And uh, I took this as the fact that not only do they have a lot of funding requests, but the fact that they're teeing up to prove that means they've been working with the agencies, people are now starting to get back the muscle memory on how to make the case for modernization. So whether it gets funded to the 750 million or more realistically, they get the case to the appropriators. The appropriators embrace major modernization in areas where there are program gaps. I think it's a good thing. And I, I, don't, I don't think you get over a hump with the TMF in terms of modernization. I think you use the insights from the TMF and the funding as the catalyst to get over the hump with the appropriators and different agencies on modernization. Mark, your Hill experience serves you well here because I think, Dan, the challenge for the TMF, I don't know if anybody ever 
comes right out and says it. But the challenge with the TMF seems to be that the appropriators don't want to put the money there because they're not the ones that wind up being able to direct where it goes. That's just my observation as an amateur. Is that a reasonable observation as to why TMF has struggled to get the money that it struggled to get? Yeah, that's historically been the case with funds of smaller scale that have been similar to the TMF going back to the GSA Innovation Fund in the 1990s. Um, to the eGov fund that Mark and I worked with, to the uh, you think even things like the iTor, which does have a an appropriation that goes to OMB, uh, has funded a lot of U.S. digital service activity, but also affects other agencies. So there's a tension between these these funds that are kind of centrally allocated and the appropriation staff's interest in uh, making sure that the funds that they are steward for are spent on missions and programs that they're. They're permitted for, and, and the key here, I think, is two things. One, it's it's transparency, and you know you can never talk to Hill staff enough. Um, Mark was a Hill staffer; he probably would uh, would have opinions on that. That's why he's uh, grinning when you say that. Uh, <laughs> and also, the, the, to double down on Mark's point about the connection between the TMF and the the hundred billion dollars in IT spend, the all the projects that are done behind this. Because if you can show an appropriator, all right, if you spend $100 million here, it's really going to benefit the $5 billion portfolio in your agency. That's going to be a much easier sell than if you say, all right, this is just a, some disconnected project that doesn't really have much benefit to you. So showing that connection between the investment and the mission, the mission benefit to the programs that they oversee and the money that 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 tie, that's key. So Mark, Dan's explanation there helps me to understand even more why your point about the business cases is important because whether it's a TMF board you're trying to convince or Capitol Hill, I mean to paraphrase Dan, if I may, he was just saying these agencies have to learn how to make better business cases, whoever it is they're trying to ask for the money, right? And deliver on that. Yeah. All right. right. Very simple. Mark Foreman's choice is the second most important federal news story of the week is Billy Mitchell's story on fedscoop.com. Board plans to spend remaining $750 million in TMF by year's end. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, and the FedScoop News Countdown continues in just a moment. A long list of CIOs and CTOs across government are coming to the UiPath Together Summit. You'll learn about automation from leaders in government and industry. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City on June 14th. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And we are now up to number one. Dan Chenick, your choice is the most important federal news story of the week. The White House chronicling its equity efforts in the American Rescue Plan I, I give the Biden administration a lot of credit. They have been very clear from the very beginning, from January 20th of last year, what their priorities are. And certainly diversity, equity, inclusion and access are are one of the big ones. Uh, yeah. The, the thing I thought was important about this was you know, every administration does a report uh, or m- many reports on the priorities that they set in motion um, to talk about the, the achievement. The, the things that I thought were interesting where the, the the manner of the report was about the shape of the distribution and the equity elements. And that's obviously a, a key priority of the administration. It's also, you know, it's a, in terms of, of government programs, oftentimes they've been more focused on efficiency, especially programs at the scale of the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of data tracking around distributional effects 
um, equity, uh, the work that's been done, for example, by the National Academy of Public Administration, supporting the government around um, around equity in, in its work, et cetera. So the, t- the way the report was set up, I thought was important. Also the tie to evidence um, uh, and, the, and the fact that they included a learning agenda, um, which is one of the elements of the Evidence Act around, it's, we're not just talking about what's happened in the past and how this how this data, this uh, money has flowed and how it benefits, but what are the research questions that we need to be asking to make sure that these programs have a lasting effect from an equity perspective in terms of their, their impact on the economy so that the, the least most underserved communities are being uh, are benefiting from monies that in a way they may not have been able to access those monies before. Mark, it's not just the White House that's applying data from the American Rescue Plan to talk about what it's done. I mean, all of the overseers that are looking at where the money went are also using data for chasing fraud and for evaluating program performance and all of that. Does this... Is this maybe a cause for optimism about all of the things that you talked about earlier uh, on on your number three story about using data and using evidence? Are we seeing progress in the way that agencies use it, in the way that the government as a whole uses data and evidence, and in are, are, do you see that we're moving the needle at all in outcomes? Well, I I looked at uh, page 14 of that report, and it just goes through the data on unemployment and housing and a number of things, and and it's impressive. Uh, Now, can you draw cause and effect relationships? Um, And how long between the time that the government, whether it's the Fed or the administration and Congress act to pour money into the economy and you start to see results. All I can say is we're living through this. I mean, anybody listening to this knows what's been happening in the stock market. They know what's been happening in inflation. And and, um, we are living in such difficult times now. It's It's not like you do one thing and you can directly link that to the outcomes. Um, And I think though, the report makes a better case on the positive effects, but we're living through right now some pretty negative effects. And and I think that that's the other other, uh, way the error flows in these algorithms is, (laughs) do we go too far? Do you do too much? And then do you reduce it? Or how do you manage that? If we could keep those statistics on page 14, we'd have such a great society. Um, Dan, the Troubled Asset Relief Program comes to my mind every time I think about the American Rescue Plan. And just from an oversight and, and a, an execution perspective, I know there are differences in why they happened and all of that. But I, is that a reasonable parallel for me to draw? Or is each one of these a one-off because of the completely different nature of the way that they come upon society and the way society has to react to them? Well, any major national initiative like this, where you've got, you know, billions, trillions of, of federal dollars going to, um, uh, to help with economic improvement, given hard times like Mark, Mark described, certainly we, we are, the pandemic was among the hardest times that we have ever seen in our lifetime since probably the Great Depression in terms of economic impact in, in a short period of time. There are lessons that, that are learned 
from one to the next. And, and um, uh, you know, the American Rescue, I'm sorry, the uh, Recovery Act uh, lessons were captured by Ed Sevi, you mentioned earlier in this, but in his work leading that effort, he then wrote about it in a report for our center. Um, so there are lessons that can be learned across um, even dating back to like the National Performance Review and some of the initiatives that they led. The, the difficulty is that we don't have a government that's set up to be ready to replicate and sort of immediately jump in to, uh, to take advantage of what happened before. So an event will happen, you'll set up a big infrastructure and a big data repository like the, like the, um, the recovery kind of operation center, which had fantastic data flows that were led by Earl Devaney um, uh, and others. And then it kind of goes away. The, the, the crisis goes away and the capability goes away. And then another crisis happens and you have to set up everything again. Um, and, and if there were a way for the government to kind of have a little bit more of an operations flow um, to that, to be able to ramp back up more quickly across, uh, you'd see less of that. What, I've, what I sometimes call the Brigadoon effect, where you know the town sprouts up in the middle of the of the thing, and then it, it goes away at the end, and then it you know disappears until the next thing comes along. There should be a way we can build a toolbox like that, shouldn't there, Mark? You know, I, I'm fascinated by this because uh, it, it's not like we don't know. There's so many of these uh, paradoxes in government management, and we'll get to that in my next story. I know, but. Um, uh, so they built a rock, Sean Kingsbury bundles it up, they give it to Treasury. Not invented here. We're not going to have another major disaster, right? Mm. So they, they, sure, they well, archive man, it. Nothing bad will ever happen again. <laughs> right, they archive it. And so uh, I, I think the rock went away, and I think um, Brian Lorenz and, and, and the folks over at the, at the PRAC have done a wonderful job with what they call, I think, the pace now. And um, and it's next generation beyond the rock. You know, the rock was so impressive because they took counterterrorism tools and applied those to fraud networks. And um, and I think that, you know, maybe who, who could tell? Maybe it, it was good that it wasn't there because then Brian and the team could bring in all kinds of new technology that, Maybe they wouldn't have done before. So there's a balance, but I'm balanced from my perspective. I think it was a shame that the Treasury kind of mothballed all that good stuff. The American Rescue Plan equity efforts, Dan Chenick's choice as the most important federal news story of the week. You teased it, Mark. And your choice at number one is the Food and Drug Administration's role in the baby formula crisis. Now, I have to admit, until you pointed this out to first of all, my son's 22, so I haven't thought about baby formula for a really long time. Um, but I didn't think about the role of the Food and Drug Administration in the baby formula crisis. What's happening here and why is this important enough that you made it number one this week? Well, it's what's not happening here. Mm. It's all these management reforms that Dan and I have been involved in these last few years that, that they just failed on every element of it. And it just surprises me. You know, um, I've been looking at this issue of prices and, and can the government forecast or deal with prices um, since the Billion Prices Project about uh, 15, 16 years ago. And, um, and, the way this was set up, they got the data, 
I don't know if, if agriculture got the data, but I, I assume so. But if you look at performance.gov, FDA's performance metrics here were make sure people were sending us data. And what this article that I, I referred to looked at was, man, they got a whistleblower report back in September. Now, they also don't have a lot of people to do food safety at FDA, it turns out, because it's, they just don't think it's as big as drugs. And you understand that coming through the pandemic and how you know uh, we have issues from Alzheimer's to cancer to now pandemics. So I understand FDA has a preference, but food safety, you got nine people and the impact of food safety problems are pretty severe as this shows. So, all right, so they got, they got data. They, they had nothing to do with the data. Their performance metric was we're collecting data, not we're making decisions, not that we're doing evidence-based policymaking. They get a whistleblower report. They don't know what to do with it. It gets lost at FDA somehow. Um, and then a couple of babies die. They figure they have to intervene. They shut down the plant. No planning, no looking at, geez, if we shut down the plant, is the risk there greater to the infant population, which is non-trivial, um, than keeping the plant open? And what's the backup? If we shut down the plant, how do we mitigate that risk? So enterprise risk planning kind of went out the window, wasn't looked at. And so in, in competition, good bureaucratic competition via the White House, agriculture goes and starts shipping in stuff from overseas, something that clearly could have been thought of had the agencies been working together. So the notion of cross-agency collaboration on a crisis kind of dropped the ball on that. I, I think all the types of management reforms that we've tried to see uh, somehow didn't, uh, didn't occur. The, the action just wasn't there. Dan, I take all of Mark's points, but there are a couple of facts here that really jumped out at me. The context to me that Mark, the point that Mark made is good. This was happening in the middle of the pandemic, obviously. This started last fall, so fall of 21, um, when people are just kind of maybe starting to be, to get awareness of the Omicron or of the Delta wave. We're in the middle of that. And I imagine there were probably not a lot of people coming to the mailroom of the Food and Drug Administration. But that's where the whistleblower sent the information. 34-page document goes to the FDA by mail. The agency says a failure in its mailroom uh, kept people from seeing it for a long time. More reports coming in. It's 2022. There's got to be a better way, one would think, for whistleblowers to get information in front of people when it's a matter of life and death like this. That's what seemed to me to be the greatest. And I'm Mark, I'm not discounting what you just laid out there, but that seems to me to be the biggest failure here is just uh, an analog system from 1968 that doesn't work anymore. Is that, am I out of line there, Dan? I think that's certainly a, a piece of it. I think that, um, there's been a lot of discussion for the last two decades around, do we need um, structural reform in the food safety area? Um, and, you know, do we need to think about either a virtual single food agency or a, an actual single food agency? There have been proposals to that effect, which would elevate it in, so it wasn't one part of, of FDA, but there was a, you take the USDA Food Safety and Inspection Service, the uh, FDA's food um, arena, some elements of, 
of food oversight from other agencies. So that that would create an organizational imperative to increase the attention to data when it comes in. The other thing that Mark mentioned, and Francis, and you, you talked about a little bit, was this concept of risk management. It's also around risk communication. Um, and uh, it, it highlights a larger issue, I think, that, that agencies are facing, which is these pandemic-like shocks are going to happen more frequently. Um, you know, you've got uh, uh, geopolitical instability, climate instability, um, uh, you know, uh, markets that are driven up and down because of due to technology um, uh, in different in ways that we haven't seen before. So you've got um, a confluence of events that can basically pop up a problem at any point, and there will be whistleblowers who will come through and point out the problem. So understanding the risks that can occur in, in any situation and allocating resources consistent with those risks. So, you know, had the FDA sort of done that, they probably would have had more than nine people because they would have allocated more resources, even during at a time when the public risk was A, there, there's still a risk B that they need to be ready for and communicate the the response to that. So I think all of that kind of plays in. Mark Foreman's choice is the most important federal news story of the week, the Food and Drug Administration's role in the baby formula shortage. And that concludes this week's FedScoop News Countdown. Great as always, gentlemen, to have you participate in this program. It's wonderful to bring it back and it's wonderful to bring some of my best at it back. So thanks both of you for doing it today. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Yeah, always a great discussion. The FedScoop News Countdown returns next Friday with two more experts in the federal government community. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. And if you really like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review to help more people find the program. The Daily Scoop podcast, a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Remember, the Daily Scoop podcast is off on Monday. Tuesday, we're back with the Chief Information Officer of the Army, Raj Iyer. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Have a great weekend. Thanks very much for listening.